conversations. Good day, everybody. This is Davo here, and I'm joined by Rebecca Foskey. How are you going? Good morning. How formal of you, Davo, Pavlin, Premel? And you are listening to Med Conversations. Today, we're going to talk about lymphadenopathy. Let's get into it. So imagine you're sitting in your country GP office and you see that James White is on your patient list. He's a pretty fit 27-year-old, plays on the local footy team, works as a tradie. You haven't actually seen him as a doctor since he was a teenager. After a quick catch-up about his family, he tells you that he's come in on the insistence of his girlfriend because he's had these big lymph nodes in his neck for the last couple of weeks. He wouldn't usually come in, but his uh, girlfriend had a cousin that died a couple of years ago and she was really worried, so here he is. So, Beck, how common is malignancy as a cause of lymphadenopathy? In the general population presenting to their GPs, not very common, about 1.1%. But out of those patients who are deemed by the GP to be higher risk and sent on to, to another specialist, about 17% who are referred on to specialists with lymphadenopathy have malignancy. So I thought before we talk more about James White, we'll just go through the causes of lymphadenopathy and particular what the causes are in specific places. So in the cervical nodes of the neck where James had his, there's two chains, the anterior chain and the posterior chain. In the anterior chain, is that a very worrying place to have lymphadenopathy, Beck? No, it's certainly the posterior chain that's more sinister. So anterior chain is most likely to be infectious, and mostly infections of the head and neck or systemic infections that you would be very familiar with, like infectious mononucleosis or glandular fever, um, CMV, toxoplasmosis. While we're on EBV, what's the clinical trial again? So fevers, moderate to high fevers, pharyngitis, and of course, lymphadenopathy. So out of the two, as we said, posterior cervical lymphadenopathy is more worrying. EBV infection is there as well. And in fact, that's a more common place for EBV to be rather than anterior. But all the other differentials or the more, more common in- differentials after that are pretty worrying. So TB, lymphoma, Kikuchi's disease. Kikuchi's disease. Kikuchi's disease. Oh, no. What's Kikuchi's <laughs> disease? Actually, that's a benign condition found in young women. But the other ones are serious. So quickly on TB, what does that look like? What are you going to feel on the lymph nodes? So in terms of the lymph nodes, usually there's multiple that are enlarged and it's a subacute presentation over weeks to months. The lymph nodes can be fluctuant or they can be matted together. So there's a few that are almost attached, tethered mm. to each other. Mm. And there is often no significant inflammation or tenderness. Hard cervical lymph nodes, on the other hand, particularly if they're in an older patient who are smokers or something like that, suggest metastatic head and neck cancer. All right, supraclavicular lymph nodes. That was cervical, now for supraclavicular. Is that the same, usually benign? No, that's, that's usually not benign. It's a very high risk of malignancy. So two stud- in two studies, malignancy was found in 34 and 50% of patients with a presentation of supraclavicular lymphadenopathy. So very high risk. Don't turn your back on a supraclavicular lymphadenopathy. Right supraclavicular adenopathy was associated with cancer in the mediastinum, uh, the lungs of the esophagus. And on the other hand, left supraclavicular adenopathy, what's the other name for that? Verco's node. Or Vercow, as I like to say. So that's uh, associated with abdominal malignancy. Uh, so things in the stomach, gallbladder, pancreas, etc. Or, or prostate, I think it's worth saying that one. Prostate, okay. Uh, auxiliary lymphadenopathy. So that's often associated with breast cancer, but you can often get it due to infections. For example, cat scratch disease, which is Bartonella henselae, can present like that. 
And so can breast implants? So I reckon that would actually be quite a common one. It's not because the breast implant has somehow got into your axilla. It's just a lymph node reaction to this foreign material. So ask about breast implants. Maybe don't palpate, but ask about it. So there's other malignancies that can cause it as well. So in one series of 31 patients with isolated axillary masses, nine had breast cancer um, and nine had mets from other sites. So it's not always breast cancer. Trochlear lymph nodes, so that's the ones around your elbow. Again, is that something you should usually be able to feel? No, so if they're palpable, that's always pathological. Always pathological. So it can be from infections in the local area of the forearm or the hand, and it can also be from lymphoma or some rarer causes like sarcoidosis or secondary syphilis. All right, final group we're going to talk about inguinal, so that's similar to the others usually caused by a lower extremity infection, as you expect, because that's where the drainage happens. STIs, obviously, is a infection that happens in that area or cancer. So moving now on to generalized lymphadenopathy. So that's where there's more than one group of lymph nodes involved. Let's go through some common causes of that. HIV, so non-tender adenopathy primarily involving the axillary, cervical, and occipital nodes. So those three, axillary, cervical, and occipital, develops in the majority, the majority of individuals, that is, during seroconversion illness. And then it kind of goes down a bit, but it tends to persist in some form throughout their illness, apparently. Mm. Tuberculosis, so we spoke about that as a localized cause. Of course, TB can do everything always and can also be generalized. So as we said, typically matted or fluctuant, uh, non-tender, and they occur over weeks or months. Also remember other Mycobacteria can do it as well. For example, Mycobacterium avium complex. When you say other Mycobacteria can do it? Can create generalised lymphadenopathy. Okay. Infectious mononucleosis mono. So we said it happens in the neck, but it can also spread elsewhere. So that's a cause of generalised lymphadenopathy. It's a good little clinical pearl. If someone comes in with pharyngitis and they've got generalised lymphadenopathy, that's much more likely to be mono rather than a bacterial cause. SLE, how common do you reckon? So SLE is systemic lupus erythromatosis. Shouldn't have tried to say that one. So how common do you think lymphadenopathy will be in that group of patients? About half, I think, have lymphadenopathy. Yeah, really, really common. So typically soft, non-tender, discrete, and varying in size. But can Um, end up being quite large, several centimetres. Can be as well. So... On every differential list, this needs to be here, and lymphadenopathy is absolutely no exception. Medications, have they started any new medications, should be part of any history you take. And the classic one is phenytoin. So it causes gum hypertrophy as well, that's how I remember it, and can cause generalised lymphadenopathy. thought we'd run through some very rare causes. Don't worry too much about this, but if everything else has been boring, maybe you'll learn something else here. Castleman's disease, which is an angiofollicular lymph node hyperplasia is an uncommon lymphoproliferative disorder characterized by massive lymphadenopathy and systemic features such as fever, hepatomegaly, splenomegaly, often occurs in the immunosuppressed. I've actually got a patient with HIV who probably has this at the moment. Really? Yeah. Kikuchi's disease. We talked about before. We talked about rare benign condition of unknown cause occurring most commonly in young women characterized by cervical lymphadenopathy and sometimes generalized and fever. Kawasaki, you might remember from your paediatric study days. An uncommon illness, but uh, most frequent cause of childhood vasculitis associated with fever, 
cervical lymphadenopathy and other stuff like conjunctivitis, mucositis and coronary artery aneurysms. That's the only really serious complication. Inflammatory pseudotumor is another one. It's a syndrome lymphadenopathy in one or more node groups, often with systemic symptoms. Amyloidosis you might have heard about before can be deposited in the lymph nodes. Again, something can go everywhere. Kimura disease, an inflammatory condition involving the subcutaneous tissue and lymph nodes of the head and neck, often with associated elevations in serum immunoglobulin E levels and eosinophilia. Rosade Rosai, how do you reckon you say that one? Rosai Dorfman. Too many eponymous names, overwhelming. Is a disease which is a sinus histiocytosis with massive lymphadenopathy. It's a condition characterized by a massive accumulation of histiocytes in the lymph nodes. So some eponymous rare stuff there. Look into that a bit further if you're super duper interested in rare causes of lymphadenopathy. I thought we'd just quickly go over the history. What, how do you take a good lymphadenopathy history? So I guess first, getting a history of the lymph nodes themselves. How long has it taken for them to come up? Does it? Do they hurt? As per usual, time course, time course, time course. Very critical here. And then you start thinking about the different causes that you're trying to pull out. So malignancy is obviously the one you're most worried about. So make sure you ask about B symptoms. Or what are B symptoms? So fever, night sweats, weight loss. They're called B symptoms because under the staging systems, you add a B onto their stage if they have this kind of stuff. Just generalized lumps or bumps might point you to something else to palpate. Shortness of breath or dysphagia, that might happen if they've got some big lymph nodes or some other type of cancer in their chest. And just generalized pain, like often you can localize cancer or find metastasis if you just ask about pain. And then infection is the other big differential that we talked about. So how do you ask about that? So again, fevers, any localizing infective symptoms like pharyngitis, Mm. a cut on their foot, uh, exposure history, travel and immigration, that kind of thing. If they've had exposure to sick contacts, we mentioned cat, cat scratch disease earlier. So have they had any cat scratches, tick bites, undercooked meat? A general infectious diseases history. Listen to our fever and our return traveller for more detail. Then we said before that SLE was a very common cause. You might ask about some autoimmune type symptoms. Finally, never forget, never forget. Medications. Any new medications, that's the one, yeah. So examination. So when you're feeling a lymph node, you found a lymph node, what kind of things do you ask yourself about it? So I always learnt size, consistency, fixation, tenderness and fluctuance. So going through those size, what's an abnormal node size? When do you get worried? Greater than one centimetre. That's the one, yeah. So there was one series done, which UpToDate talks about, where no patient with a lymph node smaller than one centimetre had cancer. No patient. Compared with eight, between eight and 38% of those with nodes 1 to 2.5 and greater than 2.2.5 respectively. But basically, less than a centimetre, no chance of cancer. Consistency, so we talked about before, hard nodes are found in cancers that induce fibrosis, so often metastases, and when previous inflammation has left fibrosis. Firm, rubbery nodes, they're the ones you find in lymphoma, so when the cancer is actually in the lymph node, and chronic leukemia as well. Uh, just a little note, I don't know if you'll be able to get to the point where you differentiate between lymphoma and leukemia on palpation, but <laughs> acute leukemia tends to have slightly softer nodes. Fixation, so abnormal nodes can become fixed to adjacent tissue and to themselves, in which case they become matted. Tenderness, so that's a really key one. You're always happy if you find tenderness because it's more likely to be infection. Of course, like any 
so I know it's not 100% specific, it can still be other things. So invading cancers can sometimes be tender, and if they bleed like into the lymph node, that can cause tenderness as well. And fluctuant nodes, so that's typically caused by staphylococcal or streptococcal infections in the neck. That's where you feel these fluctuant nodes. So that's when you're like feeling a waterbed basically under there. And uh, in that kind of case, you've got to consider, do I need to incise and drain this? And then beyond the lymph nodes, of course, in a hematological exam, you're always going to have a feel of the spleen as well. So is that always lymphoma or leukemia? No, you can also be enlarged in um, infectious mononucleosis. So that's what we always hope that this patient has. Whenever someone comes in under hematology, I'm on there at the moment, like, please, fingers crossed, let this be mono, not leukemia or lymphoma. So it's a nice benign differential that we've always got. So back to James. That was our guy at the beginning. We haven't talked about him for a while. But here he came in with lymphadenopathy in his neck. And then after taking that history, had no particular infective symptoms or exposure risk factors, no B symptoms. You examine him and he has three cervical lymph nodes, 1.5 to 2 centimetres in size. Is that pathological? Yes. And rubbery non-tender, which group felt like that? So the rubbery ones, we were worried about lymphoma or leukemia, which was slightly less hard. <laughs> and there's no other lymphadenopathy, no splenomegaly. So even though rubbery is something you feel in lymphoma, obviously that is not something you can make the diagnosis on. So what do you do next? Do you biopsy right then and there, send him home, never see him again? What would you do? I think that this is always an uncomfortable thing for doctors to do, but nothing. He's well and there's enough time to observe him for three to four weeks and see if the diagnosis starts to rear its head. So there's nothing else to suggest malignancy at this point, and this is a safer approach that avoids any unnecessary biopsies. That's right. So it it might get better. Mono-EBV, typically the lymph nodes get better in three to four weeks, or even less, two to three weeks. So that's why we wait three to four weeks. And in a cancer where there's no B symptoms, it's only localised to a few lymph nodes, it's very unlikely that you'll cause any damage by waiting three to four weeks. So that's the suggested approach. But if you did biopsy, what would you want to do? So so there are three options. You can do it with an FNA, a core biopsy, or FNA an open, being a fine needle aspirate. That's it, yeah. A core biopsy or an open biopsy, and each of those options is more invasive than the previous. So the gold standard is the most invasive one, an open biopsy. Most often, I believe, a core biopsy is what's done as the middle ground where we can still classify lymphoma. To be honest, on hematology, we take whatever we get. It's so hard to get biopsies. We'll just book both. We'll literally go to radiology. Please let us biopsy this man, and we'll go to... Um, general surgery, like, please give us this excisional biopsy, and that whoever, whoever turns up first will take their biopsy. Really? Yeah, that's right. That's gold standard medicine for you. <laughs> FNA, on the other hand, is useless. We never ever use that because there's no information on tissue architecture, and so it's really hard to make a diagnosis. So, in one study, only 27 of 93, that's 27% of um, FNA attempts for initial diagnosis of lymphoma yielded a specific incomplete histological diagnosis. So, useless. We won't do that. All right, back to James. So he was unfortunately lost to follow-up. And then he presented to his country emergency department six, tw- uh, six months later with severe chest pain and nausea on a background of 10 kilos of recent weight loss and changing his bed sheets every night, so significant B symptoms. Transferred down to a metro hospital with a very high suspicion of malignancy, obviously, 
We did a CT scan very quickly and that showed widespread lymphadenopathy in its mediastinal, cervical, auxiliary, subclavicular lymph nodes. Luckily, nothing below the diaphragm that we could see on CT, which is a good sign. We'll talk about that later when we talk about staging. Uh, but also T1 vertebral involvement and also lung parenchymal involvement, so it's spread beyond the lymph nodes. Uh, the PET confirmed that there was nothing below the diaphragm, which was good, and just showed a lot of hot spots above the diaphragm. I had a pulmonary function test which showed an obstructive defect, uh, a gated pool, which is a scan, which is a nuclear medicine study of the heart, so the abnormal heart, so ready for chemo. And then we did the excisional biopsy. He had an abnormal heart, so he's ready Normal for heart, chemo. normal heart. Oh, sorry. So he had a ready for chemo. Uh, and then we did an excisional biopsy in him, and it came back as a classical Hodgkin lymphoma, which is brings us to the next part of the podcast. Let's talk about Hodgkin lymphoma. So epidemiology-wise, Hodgkin lymphoma accounts for approximately 10% of all lymphomas. What's the stereotypical Hodgkin lymphoma patient that you think of, Beck? Young adults in their 20s, but I know that there's a bimodal distribution. So although there is one peak in young adults, there's also one in adults of older age in their 60s. More common in males than in females as well. So you could think of James, whatever his name is, as the stereotypical lymphoma, Hodgkin lymphoma patient. So moving on to classification now. Classical Hodgkin lymphoma. These are neoplastic cells are derived from germinal center B cells, but typically fail to express many of the genes and gene products that define normal germinal central B cells, so germinal center B cells. And there's four types. There's nodular sclerosis, classical Hodgkin lymphoma, mixed cellularity, classical Hodgkin lymphoma, lymphocyte-rich classical Hodgkin lymphoma, and lymphocyte-depleted classical Hodgkin lymphoma. And then separate from the classical Hodgkin lymphoma is nodular lymphocyte-predominant Hodgkin lymphoma. And the tumor cells in this subtype are a little bit different because they retain a lot of the immunophenotypic features of germinal center B cells. They're not quite, they haven't quite lost all those features. They're still close to the type of um, cells that they come from. So immunophenotyping is only useful for differentiating between nodular lymphocytic predominant HL and the classical ones. Don't worry, we'll go through each of these types in a little bit more detail. But just as a broad concept, basically classical Hodgkin lymphoma is a heterogeneous group of tumors characterized by the presence of a minority of neoplastic cells. Do you know what these cells are called, Beck? Reed Sternberg cells. So that's a classic buzzword you need to know for your MCQs. They're the ones that look like owl's eyes. Yeah. And these cells basically sit in an inflammatory background. So the basic histopathology is these Reed Sternberg cells sitting in this sea of inflammatory background cells. And the different subtypes are basically defined by the type of Reed Sternberg cell you see and the different types of inflammatory background. So keep that in mind. So just going back a little bit. So what is a Reed Sternberg cell? What does it look like? So they're big cells and they have an abundant, slightly basophilic cytoplasm. They've got two lobes, so they're bilobed, double or multiple nuclei, and they have two or more prominent eosinophilic inclusion-like nucleoli. So they're the, they're the sort of pupils of the owl's eyes. Yeah, so if you were to pick an animal that it looks like owl is the one you'd pick, owl's eyes, highly suggest looking at some photos of these. They're very kind of characteristic. You'd pick them up in an MCQ. So the first subtype of classical Hodgkin lymphoma, nodular sclerosis classical Hodgkin lymphoma. So the histopathology here is uh, defined by nodular growth pattern where there's fibrous bands separating the nodules. The other important part is that the neoplastic cells, the Reed-Sternberg cells, are lacuna cells, which are 
particular type, I won't go into it too much, but they have this abundant pale cytoplasm. So the next one is mixed cellularity classical Hodgkin lymphoma. Similar, but it grows in this uh, nodular growth pattern, but there isn't these band-forming sclerosis between the nodules. So there isn't as in it doesn't have those. Yeah, it doesn't have the sclerosis, thanks. Mm -hmm. Then there's lymphocyte-rich classical Hodgkin lymphoma. So remember we said it's all about Reed-Sternberg cells. I'm going to say it the first time correctly, at least once, I promise. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so remember we said it's these cells sitting in this background of inflammatory cells. Obviously, in lymphocyte-rich classical HL, it's going to be predominantly made up of lymphocytes. Yeah, so there's rare or even no eosinophils or neutrophils mm. in this subtype. Then there's lymphocyte-depleted classical Hodgkin lymphoma. This is where it all starts to make sense. So the growth pattern appears hypocellular due to the presence of fibrosis, necrosis, and a paucity of inflammatory cells of all types. So, hypocellular. Mm. So, now I just want to quickly talk about immunophenotyping. So, that's a technique that's helpful in distinguishing classical Hodgkin lymphoma from the non-classical, which is also called nodular lymphocyte-predominant Hodgkin lymphoma, as well as other lymphoma subtypes, of course. So, as we said, in a classical HL, the Reed-Sternberg cells uh, don't express many of the markers that a normal germinal B cell would. However, they do express CD15 and CD30. CD30 in particular, virtually 100% of cases. But they lack these PAN-B antigens and PAN-T antigens that you might see on a a normal germinal B cell um, and you might also see on uh, neoplastic cells in nodular lymphocyte-predominant Hodgkin lymphoma. The other thing about nodular lymphocyte-predominant HL is that they have these cool cells called popcorn cells that really do look like popcorn cells. Again, uh, look at some pictures, probably the best way to learn that. All right, out of the lab now into the bedside stuff. So how does um, Hodgkin lymphoma tend to present back? So most of the time, it's just with lymphadenopathy, nothing else, and often that's asymptomatic. It's much like James, yeah. Yeah, so as we said earlier, non-tender, rubbery consistency, usually in the neck, um, sometimes in the axilla or or in the inguinal nodes, but much more frequently in the neck. Mm. There can be some incidental findings of mediastinal masses. So given everyone gets a PAN scan for setting foot in a hospital these days, there's a lot of uh, lymphoma that's found this way. Uh, In 60 to 70% of cases at presentation, there will be mediastinal nodes and retroperitoneal nodes in 25%. So a lot of these will be found incidentally as well. And I actually, one of my one of my few triumphs in the year and a few months that I've been a doctor was in my first week of work where I was an intern in ED in the country and a patient came in after a car accident. I took a handover from another intern and decided um, to redo the examination of a normal abdomen and found that what I thought was a, um, a growing hematoma turned out to actually be lymphoma. So there you go, a real-life example of incidental findings of lymphoma. I'm not going to pretend to act off surprised and things like that, so I've heard it before, but it is really, really cool. Well done. Good doctoring, Beck. Good doctoring. Go the accidental doctoring. So we've got asymptomatic lymphadenopathy, mediastinal mass incidentally found, and the final typical presentation, B symptoms, so that we've talked about those before. I just want to say something about the general presentation of Hodgkin lymphoma, it arises with one lymph node area and then spreads to contiguous lymph nodes. So when someone presents with lymph nodes that aren't contiguous, for example, if they present with lymphadenopathy in the neck and the lower abdomen, 
that's less likely to be Hodgkin lymphoma because it couldn't have gone that way without going through the lymph nodes in between. Of course, the exception is uh, in the advanced stages where there's vascular invasion and can pop up anywhere. So next we've got some other stuff that, you know, you look pretty smart for asking about in an admission note for a potential Hodgkin lymphoma. Pruritus is a very important early symptom. Proceeds a diagnosis of Hodgkin lymphoma by months or even a year or more. So it occurs early in 10-15% of patients, and almost all patients have pruritus at some stage. Uh, severe but not mild pruritus is a very poor prognostic sign, just something to keep in mind. Pain, as James had, chest pain, abdominal discomfort are the two most common. Cholestatic liver disease. So this is a rare but very serious complication. One case series showed that it was uh, present in 1.4% of patients. And uh, we've, we've actually got a patient with this on the wards at the moment. He's got HIV and he developed Hodgkin lymphoma as a result of that. And he's in big trouble because of his um, liver problem. His bilirubin, I think, is in the 600s at the moment. It's pretty crazy. Which I imagine would also contribute to that pruritus. Probably, probably. So next one, this is an interesting one. You'd, you'd feel pretty smart for picking this up on a history, I've got to say. Alcohol-induced pain. So severe... Not, not to dignity. But physical. And this is immediate. This isn't the next morning. This isn't a hangover. So this is severe pain following alcohol ingestion, typically occurring within a few minutes after the ingestion of even a small amount. Uh, it occurs in 10% of patients, so not that many, but really highly specific for a diagnosis of Hodgkin lymphoma. We have no idea why this happens. So give your patients a shot of vodka as they come into the room and good test. find it out pretty quickly. <laughs> Uh, skin lesions. So a lot of leukemias and lymphomas cause a wide variety of skin lesions. I won't go through them all here, but ask the patient if they've had any new rashes that they've noticed. So the last one I wanted to mention was nephrotic syndrome. So kidney stuff that might present with edema or bubbly urine. Minimal change disease is the more common cause, but you can also get focal segmental glomerular sclerosis. If those words mean nothing to you, await a nephrotic syndrome podcast soon. All right, so beyond the history and exam, what might you see on the bloods? Hypercalcemia, um, either directly from the lymphoma due to increased production of calcitriol or secondary to bony involvement. So anemia, that can be normal chromic or normal acidic. That could be because the lymphoma is so advanced that it's gone into the bone marrow and is pushing out the normal erythrocytes. Uh, but it can also be due to a Coombs-positive hemolytic anemia. So don't assume it's bone marrow involvement. Do a full hemolytic screen. Hmm. Eosinophilia as well is so quite common. The more I go through medicine, the more I realise you can't ignore an eosinophilia. It's something I occasionally just see, but the more I learn about these serious diseases, I find that raised eosinophils is a, is a marker of some sort. So some other abnormalities you might also see, leukocytosis, thrombocytosis, lymphopenia, and hypoalbuminemia as a general marker of sickness. Was that hypo or hyper? Hypo. Hypo. I I don't know any causes of hyperalbuminemia. So moving on to staging now, what's the staging system called, Beck? Ann Arbor. Uh, I assume we're naming it after somebody. Presumably. I think they were friends with Reed Sternberg. So a few stages, four, in fact, as is typically the case in cancer staging. You probably guess what they are. Stage one, involvement of a single lymph node or of a single extra lymphatic organ or site, which is called 1E. 
uh, stage two involvement of two or more lymph node regions. So note that this isn't lymph nodes, but lymph node regions. So if you have two or three cervical nodes, but nothing else, that'll still be one lymph node region uh, on the same side of the diaphragm or with involvement of limited contiguous extra lymphatic organ or tissue. And that's 2E if you've got the extra lymphatic stuff. Stage three, so guess what that would be, Beck? So same thing, both sides of the diaphragm. Yeah, so that's a really key thing that we use PET for, is this on one side or both sides. Very important for prognosis. Stage four, um, additional non-contiguous extra lymphatic involvement with or without associated lymphatic involvement. So where it's basically everywhere. So how do you do the staging? I think so as you said, the PET scan. Yeah. You can also use CT scans. We talked about PAN scans earlier. So CT, chest, abdo, pelvis. Yeah, that's right. The, an interesting one here is bone marrow biopsy, which used to be a routine part of staging. But these days you can actually omit uh, bone marrow biopsy from most patients. Uh, a potential exception is the patient with bulky chest disease and low volume stage 3 disease. Because if the marrow had no evidence of disease, you might use radiotherapy. But if there is uh, evidence of disease in the marrow, you might not. But otherwise, it's not really so important, at least initially. So I thought I'd talk a little about prognosis. We use something called IPS, Inter International Prognostic Score, just quickly running through the bad prognostic signs. So males, unfortunately, don't do so well, as you'd expect. Older people, so the cutoff is 45 years Stage Only stage 4 disease is considered a bad prognosis. So are you getting a point for each of these things? We'll talk is about it in a works? sec. Okay. These are all just factors. Um, serum albumin, as we said before, hypoalbuminemia is a thing, and that's a bad prognosis. Hemo that's anything less than 40. That's right. Hemoglobin less than 105. White blood cell count over 15. And absolute lymphocyte count less than 0 0.6, or less than 8% of the total white blood cell count. So basically, epidemiology, general staging, and then a bunch of blood markers. And uh, then basically, you can use these uh, to predict how well people will do. So when applied to an initial group of 5,000 patients, event-free survival rates at five years with no factors were 84% of patients. And if you have go all the way down the list to five or more factors, 42% uh, of patients have a five-year event free survival, which is actually still pretty good for a cancer. So it's not the worst cancer to have the old Hodgkin lymphoma. So the prognosis is fairly good, but how do you treat it? So I won't go too into depth here, mostly because I don't understand that I'm not a hematologist. This is all very inside baseball. But here are it's some... It's all very what, sorry? Inside baseball. Is that an expression? Yeah. I'm not going to explain it. Carry on inside <laughs> the baseball. <laughs> So treatment of early stage Hodgkin lymphoma, so that's stage 1 to 2, basically use ABVD, which is doxorubicin, bleomycin, vinblastin, and dicarbazine. I won't go into how all of those work, but they kill cells, all of them. And you use a few cycles, 3 to 4, if they have a favorable prognosis, but if they're unfavorable, you might use more. Um, you can also use radiotherapy sometimes. But keep in mind, especially for young males, if you blast them in the chest with uh, radiotherapy, the great risk of um, developing kind of coronary artery complications later down the tract. And the cancer's not that bad, so you really need to think about, you know, what are these poor people going to develop 20, 30 years down the track? Is it worth the extra percentages? Mm -hmm. um, and then 
early stage Hodgkin lymphoma, sorry, late stage uh, Hodgkin lymphoma, so that's stage 3 to 4, you can use ABVD for long cycles, and then you can use some other ones called escalated beer cop, which um, are the same um, drugs basically, but adding cyclophosphamide and procarbazine, prednisolone as well, and then this other thing called the Stanford 5. Again, this is all very interesting, I'm sure, if you understand it in depth, but you really don't need to know unless you're a hematologist. And uh, just finally, if someone doesn't re- respond to chemotherapy, there is second-line stuff. There's salvage chemotherapy, and then you start looking for a match for a bone marrow transplant, which is where some of these um, patients, unfortunately, end up. So that's it. That's Hodgkin lymphoma. I hope you found it useful, um, particularly the early part on lymphadenopathy, probably clinically relevant, but Hodgkin lymphoma is a, a important thing to know about. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you.